Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So welcome to The Nose. It's the weekly cultural roundtable of the Colin McEnroe Show. I always feel like there might be some new listeners here because people's schedules are different than they used to be. So, yeah, the whole idea of The Nose is we get some people together. We talk about some stuff that's going on in culture. Um, and I should tell you that there's a term of art on The Nose called the Papulian through line. It's named after Irene Papoulis, who was one of the original, the first people ever to appear on The Nose. And the Papulian through line is, you know, you suddenly realize that there's a connection running through a series of theoretically disparate topics. Uh, and so that happened this time, like without even trying. We're doing the new Jerry Seinfeld comedy special. And then we're doing this miniseries uh, about the Waco disaster. Uh, and I just this morning realized that this is all the 90s, basically. We're just doing... I mean, Seinfeld obviously was, you know, one of the definitive comic voices and innovators of the 90s. Uh, and, of course, Waco was 93. Uh, so, yeah, we're stuck in the 90s and have a good time with us today. And when I say us, let me tell you who's here. Uh, we have Jim Chapdelaine, Emmy-winning musician, uh, producer, composer, recording engineer, and patient advocate for people with rare cancers. Tanisha Dugan is a producing associate at Theater Works. Uh, she's joining us via Skype. Jim is is zooming, uh, and uh, we're going to get right into a Jerry Seinfeld special, which does not acknowledge either zooming or Skype, because that would be way, way <laughs> too newfangled. Uh, he's still just getting used to phone to phones, to I mean, just uh, you know, like iPhones or something. So, um, before we have them all comment, let's hear uh, what's probably going to be the definitive little Seinfeld set piece from this live comedy special. Fire away, cat. Then you go to a baseball game. You have a hot dog. The hot dog is cold. The bun is not toasted. The vendor is an ex-con in a work release program. <laughs> you love that hot dog every time. Does it, does it suck? Yes. Is it great? Yes. That's how close they are. Sucks and great are the only two ratings people even give to anything anymore. Hey, let's go see that new movie. I heard it's great. Really? I heard it sucked. How could it suck? It's supposed to be great. I heard the beginning is great, and then after that it sucks. Oh, that sucks. I know. It could have been great. I say to you that sucks and great are the exact same thing. You have an ice cream cone, you're walking down the street, the ice cream falls off the top of the cone, hits the pavement, sucks. What do you say? Great. All right, that's Jerry Seinfeld. So, Tanisha, you're somehow or other, well, it must be your incredible, sprightly youth. You're kind of a newcomer to Seinfeld as opposed to those of us watching him and wondering if he's just doing his old tricks. The 90s, I can't say were my decade, but I was like more than conscious during the 90s. I just wasn't into Seinfeld or Friends or any of those shows. Um, but I don't know why, but I have a, a warm, 
feeling for him. And maybe it's because in my mind, he's best friends with Chris Rock because I love watching when they do like, you know, in comedians in cars with friends. And that just feels like fun to me. Mm-hmm. But I, I like, I like him. <laughs> Did you like? This? Or maybe I'm just fond of 65 year old men at this point because right. they all just feel like my dad. Well, Jim and I are counting on that actually. Um, <laughs> so, um, it, well, I mean, uh, to just to stay with us for a second, I mean, in a way, Seinfeld with that little piece, uh, which is I think going to be the most off-sided piece from this um, from this concert performance, he's he basically has handed reviewers exactly what they're going to say. Right? It sucks and uh-huh. it's great. Uh, was that your reaction? I mean, I don't know if I think it's I I thought it was I thought it was fun and I thought it was great. I didn't think it sucked. Mm. But then again, the person I watched it with was like, I don't really like him. I think he sucks. <laughs> so I guess I guess he he did give us the premise and he has lived up to that premise uh depending on what audience member you're talking to. Right. I, I will say by the way just for the record because I know Jim is going to go in a slightly different direction. Uh in this house, both of us laughed really hard all the way through this. I know people tend yeah. to divide tend to divide this thing up into kind of two different segments. Uh but uh but actually we both were laughing pretty hard uh, all the way through. Now for you not so much, Jim. Well, the piece you played is really sort of uh quintessential brilliant Seinfeld uh from from his show and from his stand-up comedy. Um I actually found my, and it's not hard for me to do this, but I did find myself like actually wandering off and being distracted uh, in this. And normally I would think, oh, Seinfeld's got a new thing. But I felt like he's kind of embraced his uh, position as an elder statesman of stand-up. Like I remember Billy Crystal doing the same thing. or I felt like it was partly a Bob Hope show but there was a big band in the beginning and um you know he came storming out and um there were sort of the artifacts of a previous age of comedy that were embedded in this not that he wasn't um not that he wasn't funny a lot but there was a lot of times for me where he wasn't funny and it's Jerry Fine Seinfeld and I expect him to kind of be funny a lot. But uh, I do want to uh, mention something, that, uh, hit on something that Tanisha mentioned, and that is the Chris Rock reference. And I did hear him sort of copying some of Rock's rhythmic, percussive delivery because in this in this show, Seinfeld is a little exaggerated. He goes to the high voice. He goes to his standard book of tricks a little bit more than I've seen him do in the past. I would agree that, that, his, his, that his energy isn't in kind of a, a certain place there. Um, I, and one thing that I would say about Seinfeld is, I mean, obviously he does observational comedy. And his observation, I think, is of us in the outside world. It doesn't turn really inward at all. That person that we're seeing on the screen, that's not him. It's not even close to being him. This is a guy who has practiced uh, transcendental meditation twice a day, every day for like 30 or 40 years. Um, you know, he he's... He's kind of, I think, trying to tap in to an irritation in the audience that isn't necessarily uh, his his own irritation. Let's play just a, one more clip from the from the special, and maybe people can get a little sense of what Jim's talking about. People talk about going out. 
we should go out. Let's go out. We never go out. Well, this is it. Now, the good thing about being out is you don't have to be out for long. Just long enough to get the next feeling, which you're all going to get. And that feeling is, I got to be getting back. <laughs> Wherever you are, really, anywhere in life, at some point, you got to get the hell out of there. You're at work, you want to get home. You're home, I'm working all week, I got to get out. You're out, it's late, I got to get back. I got to get up. I got to get to the airport. When are we getting on the plane? Plane takes off. When's the plane going to land? Plane lands. Why don't they open the door so we can get out? Nobody wants to be anywhere. So, Tanisha, one thing about this, he, he kind of leads with that kind of material that what he, people really hate is being out. They hate going out with their friends. They don't even really like their friends, but it was be too hard to get new friends. He, he leads with a whole bunch of stuff that his this is all recorded in March, <laughs> mm -hmm. just before we lost all that stuff. So I'm wondering how that lands with you now. I mean, I loved the title, right? 23 Hours to Kill. I mean, if that is not the most perfect title uh, for the time that we're living in, I think um, it, it just lands. And and as a person who works in, you know, a business that's about social gathering, I thought that this entire bit was hysterical because I think there's a certain element of, of truth in that. And I know it's particularly true for me. I mean, God, I am a homebody. I am an extroverted introvert. So to be able to like not be out has been amazing. And to, to hear him talk about how you don't really want to do this. This is just like the thing that you do to stay busy, to keep, keep, you know, filling the time is, I mean, it's just, it, it's spot on for me, but I want to push a little bit on um, what you said about, he, you know, his meditation and, and can this irritable guy actually be the guy that he is. And I wonder if that meditation is born of the fact that there is these aggravations that are real for him, that it's not just character. Perhaps it's overblown for the sake of a stage show. Um, but I, I suspect that there's some truth in it, not just for us as an audience, but truth for him in it, which is which I think is always the kernel of comedy. And I was surprised as someone who's never watched Seinfeld before, how physical he is and and I was trying to wrap my mind around whether or not that's a necessary element for stand-up because most of the stand-up I like has some kind of physicality to it. Yeah, first of mm -hmm. all, I, I would agree with what you said. I, I think if peace of mind came naturally to Jerry Seinfeld, he probably wouldn't be in the business he's in and he probably wouldn't need a TM twice a day. So yeah, I mean, I, I would sort of agree about that. And you know, we talked about this last week because we were watching this uh, comedy special by this uh, comedian, Ted Alexandro, uh, where he's just on YouTube and his big old face is just looking at us the entire time. And, and mm. I was saying at the time, most comedians do, you know, prowl the stage in a certain way. Chris Rock, you know, kind of notoriously has this almost kind of cat-like uh, movement. Uh, the, he's just all over the stage like that. Seinfeld famously in one of his uh, old stand-up bits was trying to illustrate the difference between winning and losing a sprint in the Olympics. And he would just slightly move his nose forward and go win. 
and then he'd just move his nose, you know, a quarter inch back and go loose. And, and I mean, he, I mean, he's so he uses good his at body a lot. Finger. Yeah. yeah, those little fingers as he's talking about the three dots when you're waiting for a text. I was like, that's genius. It's such a small physical gesture, but it's so like evocative. It, I mean, I thought it was as someone who's never watched a Seinfeld stand up. I was like, oh, I could I get it. I get why people dig him. Well, you know, I mean, Jim, uh, one thing that I would say is, and, and, and yes, I was watching this and thinking, wow, like some of the stuff about marriage, you know, I think I probably cut, heard you know, like Jackie Vernon or Jackie Mason or somebody named Jackie do on the Ed Sullivan <laughs> show in the 1960s about like how hard it is to get married. But, you know, the observational stuff, you, you watch it and you think, oh, well, like anybody could do that. And that's sort of true that anybody could talk about how disgusting porta potties are uh, and how easily the door opens. But you couldn't, but anybody can play, you know, box uh, cello concerto in G number one. Only Yo Yo Ma can play it the way he does and there's a way in which Seinfeld he you know he's like a magician who's rehearsed his card trick thousands of times before he shows it to anybody there's a way in which like all that rhythm all that patter all that all those voice modulations you know he he has worked on that really hard one senses yeah for, first of all I think there's a little bit of a freaky Friday moment happening with Tanisha and I yeah. where we're like suddenly she's embracing uh, Shecky Green from Hot Head Sullivan. <laughs> and, I, and I don't know what, what it is about me where I'm like, get, I'm telling the guy who's yelling, get off my lawn to get off my lawn. Um, I think, I think what you're talking about is that he has always been a studied master craftsman and he still has that very much. Um, yeah. His, I mean, the, the sucks. Great thing is, is really brilliant um the, the stuff about marriage um I, I suppose that's written into some weird prenup that he could do that but i don't how do you go home that day um <laughs> after that um so i i don't know i i think we're in a different time between men and women where there's a different kind of dynamic and i don't know that he's engaged that i don't know that that in a little bit of a pushback on what Tanisha is saying, I don't know that Jerry's acknowledged that, Hey, we've been texting for 10 years now. You just decided to talk about it now. Um, there's, there's a part of this that just felt sort of, uh, um, nostalgic almost. And, and, um, and I, I think it, maybe he's playing to this huge room. Um, and there's a bit of a homecoming for him. And so it, it feels very safe. Jim, I don't like your tone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all about don't tone. Don't like Jim, your right? tone. That's, that's a, <laughs> that's a right. reference to the I special, have you have, if you haven't seen it yet. So, yeah, well, you know, speaking of safe, I was going to go there anyway, Tanisha, which is that, so one thing about Seinfeld is, you know, even in the 90s, and certainly for all 20 years after the 90s, he has been very different from the transgressive com comedy that, you know, Richard Pryor practiced in the 80s and people like Louis C.K. and Chris Rock and people like that have been doing ever since, you know, the, and there's actually kind of a famous special from 2011 where Ricky Gervais uh, sort of interviews together Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld and Louis C.K. And the three of them are sitting there on stage and there's kind of a famous 
infamous moment where the n-word comes up and the one person who is not going to cross the line is seinfeld and he says so and 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 they go on to make a whole series of mistakes that became quite controversial at the time. But, you know, and, and I think Seinfeld did a smart and probably pretty gallant thing at that in doing that. But but it's also a little bit his brand, too. Right. There isn't a thing. I mean, Louis C.K. in his prime, he will make you uncomfortable at some point and he will make you laugh at your discomfort. Chris Rock can often do the same thing. I don't think there's a thing in this special unless you just think that marital acrimony is off limits in some ways. But I don't think there's, I heard him say anything that, you know, was even remotely transgressive. I, what was your take on that, Tanisha? Well, I will say, I think that, you know, because I think Jonathan said this as well, that the second half, which is the half that really is about his marriage, didn't land for him. And I do uh, agree with you or, or would posit that that is the dangerous part of this uh, hour, right? That he is speaking um, so directly about his, uh, the way marriage works for him. Um, and I, and I, I hear you, Jim, and I think that's probably true um, or not, uh, that how do you go home after that? Um, there is, there's something um, really revealing, um, which I think is a kind of comedic danger. Um, I will say, you know, when he was talking, when he was in the bit about voicemail and he talked about uh, the Maasai warriors, it did walk a kind of line of like, no. oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, and then I was like, oh, sh ish, have I become <laughs> like that, cult you know, the cultural police in that? Um, so I'd say like, that's probably one of the ones that ran me, like just raised my hairs a little bit. But I think he, he is a safe, you know, a safer comedian. Um, I think that, I think that is his brand. And I think that's comforting, you know, sometimes right. to know that you can have a laugh that's not, um, you know, it, leaving somebody else in its wake. And I think that's been a lot of the conversation. You know, I've had a, a, a chance to talk on this show about comedy a lot. And I think sometimes you know, we've been talking about it, like in order to be comedy, it has to be laid in some kind of tragedy or it has to, you know, be at the expense of a kind of person or a kind of way of thinking. And I think he offers for us the possibility to laugh hard because I laughed hard just like you um, without it being at someone else's expense. Right. And I, and I would also say, I mean, comedians make fun of their spouses. I mean, that is, you know, that is in the prenup. We all I think. Do. Like, I mean, no, that, it, that it is, is a trope. It's but, a universal thing. Say, I have to say, it, a little bit at somebody's expense, and that would be the postal service. Right. Um, oh my god! Our, yeah. At sort of a weird time to be making fun of the postal service. I mean, it's pretty. It's punching pretty far down for a guy who's a gazillionaire and I, and I, I sound like I don't like Jerry Seinfeld, but I really like, I, I, I like Jerry Seinfeld a lot. Um, and so I think I'm slightly disappointed. I think the other thing that was disappointing for me was I had recently seen Mark Maron's end times fun and uh, spoiler alert, that will be one of my endorsements. Um <laughs> And, and he is very forward in his comedy and fearless and, and he's uh, equally adept at constructing, a, probably even better at constructing a long arc and still being a little bit pointillistic about his humor. 
Um, so I think in the shadow of that, seeing Jerry come out and and parts of this felt like a USO special without the women or something. I don't know. And, and I'm overplaying that. I know that. But it, there was something very vestigial about the trappings of it and the way he presented and the sort of I don't work blue humor. Does, right. that, does that make sense? No, it does make sense. And I have to say, the thing about the Postal Service, it, it bothered me. Uh, mm-hmm. As he ran it up, because I, I appreciate it's actually the most, by far, the most beloved federal agency. I mean, there's polling on this that people mm-hmm. actually love the Postal Service in a way that they don't like any other government agency. And and we like the Postal Service in this house, and we like our carrier Sherry. Hi, Sherry. Uh, and <laughs> so, I, so it didn't really work, except at the end where he said something about a penny, and he said because that seems to be so important to you. Right, <laughs> right. He got me sure, to laugh at sure. that point because it is. True true that people are constantly arguing or getting worried about you know it going from 47 to 49 or something like that and 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 he kind of hit a pretty funny uh no i was reluctant to laugh and then he got me to do it so that i just also would quickly say i think i've seen the Marin special i think the person that i compare seinfeld to all the time in my mind is the late gary shandling the two were kind of notoriously Mm -hmm. innovators during the 90s they actually were working on shows on the same studio a lot and would as we learned in the show that Tanisha was referencing, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, when they did an episode together, they were clearly pretty good friends. And they, one of them who was freaking out, whoever was kind of freaking out on his set would go and drag the other one off his set and they would commiserate and calm down and stuff like that. But, you know, you always felt that Shandling was looking inward, you know, looking inward, wondering what else there was inside him, what else there was, looking outward and wondering what else, what else is there to life, to art, to everything, you know, and, and I, I just regret his untimely death so much and, and sure. mourn his passing. And, you know, he, he wouldn't have done this special in, 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 in this, I, I think Tanisha and I both agree this is a pretty funny special. But Shandling would—he just wouldn't have. It was would have been too reinventing the wheel for him. Uh, I, I don't know. But somebody—I'm babbling. Somebody take this away from me. No, Tanisha. you know, I, I have to say, hearing you sort of talk about Gary's sort of internal conflict and how that was um, at at the heart of his comedy. Mm makes me kind of call back one of our earlier points about his transcendental meditation and going, I, I wish, I do, I too wish that he would bring some of that to the table, that some of that, I mean, we do, I mean, maybe contradicting myself, but we do want to see some of that pain in our, or, or working through it. We want to see you work through it in the comedy as well as get some safe laughter in there. Um, and yeah, shout out to the postal service because I wasn't too thrilled with that bit either. <laughs> <laughs> See, they're I really will popular. Say, you know what? The, the guys you're talking about, and, and I, I would love include my Chris Rock. I would include Chris Rock in this too. Yeah. Have a certain tortured mm-hmm. soul thing, and mm-hmm. I feel like I'm sure Jerry is tortured in some way, but I I find it hard to believe that he's tortured just by texting. Um, So uh, I felt, I always feel like I can connect to somebody who's, who's just equally tortured uh, as I, as I feel sometimes. Well, what Um, Rock did in the, I think it's the tambourine special where he really does talk about the breakup of his marriage and about infidelity and stuff like that. You you can't, I mean, even if uh, Seinfeld had a story like that to tell, he wouldn't tell that story, but that's, you know, you also got to say, okay, but he's at what he does. He's yo-yo ma, you know, I mean. Right, right, right. Sure. I'll give you that. 
All right, we should take a break here. We're going to come back. We're going to uh, talk about something considerably more grim than the dark recesses of Jerry Seinfeld's soul. That would be Waco. There's a man who leads a life of danger. To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. All right, Waco is a six-part miniseries that originally aired on the Paramount Network uh, and uh, then was relaunched by Spike in 2018. Uh, or I guess the network spike, I don't know. It's 2018 is the key uh, year you need to know. But for some reason or other, it was added to Netflix in April, and it just has been trending ever since. It's the number nine show uh, in the U.S. as of this morning, uh, and it's a little bit of a puzzle to me, although I'm very, very interested in Waco, and I think this is very, very well cast uh, and has a lot of terrific performers like Michael Shannon uh, and Taylor Kitsch, who are basically the two leads. In fact, let's hear a clip of the two of them. You'll hear Taylor Kitsch, who you probably mainly know uh, as Tim Riggins on Friday Night Lights, and Michael Shannon is a whole long series of really crazy and scary people in a whole bunch of different things, including Boardwalk Empire. Here we go. Tell me what I need to do to get you out of there. In Psalms 2, it says David has a vision of the future, of confrontation between man and man's law and God and God's law. Okay. And Revelation 13 tells of a lamb-like beast who will rise up. Tell me, Gary, what empire is lamb-like or Christian? The United States of America. The leaders of the earth will join in council together against the Lord, against his anointed. The message in Psalms 2 is clear, Gary. Seems like you know the Bible back to front. I memorized every word of it. And you know, it also seems like you have a message. My purpose here, Gary, is that message. All right. So uh, without going into too many uh, details, uh, this was uh, a Christian group called the Branch Davidians uh, who had a compound in Waco, Texas. In 1993, uh, there was a kind of cowboy style raid by the BATF uh, because of supposedly weapons that were on site. Um, it uh, turned into a bloodbath for both sides. The FBI moved in and took over and calmed things down and then made things uh, infinitely worse with the way that they concluded things. The standoff took 51 days uh, was um, one of the early pieces of fodder for the growing world of CNN and 24-hour cable news, uh, which was still kind of in, in its infancy back then uh, and is probably a little bit at this point, the Waco story, a little bit forgotten. But um, so I'm just uh, maybe just a, a, a thumbnail assessment of this thing. And Tanisha, why don't, why don't you go first? So I'm on the uh, <laughs> side of, of this one. I think partially because I have a very fuzzy memory of it. Um, I really love Michael Shannon as an actor. 
And for some reason, when the first episode started, I kept trying to see Michael Shannon as David Koresh, like not Taylor. And so I was like, did Michael Shannon lose a lot of weight? How come I don't recognize him in this role? Um, And I, I think... You know, for me, the subject matter and then also I know, I'm not quite sure if the series gives me a different take on the subject matter in any way. Um, you know, it's sort of like cops are bad and deceptive and um, the people inside are maybe not as crazy as we think. Um, just didn't for the current zeitgeist and current moment with, you know, things like Arbery in the news. Just I don't know. It, it, I couldn't I couldn't link into it all right how about you jim um I, it's it, i agree with uh, what, what tanisha is saying to, to a degree i was really happy to see michael shanahan get to play like a, a relatively normal person mm-hmm. um, because mostly he's like a crazy person or just like a, a a tortured soul who should have a comedy special by the way um <laughs> who it, is never gets to be like go home to his wife. Like he gets to go home to his wife. Um, and he's the voice of conscience in this. So I liked that. And and I think all the acting is really good. Um, particularly surprising to me was uh, Paul Sparks, who, who mm-hmm. did like a 180 from his boardwalk empire role. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other two guys from Boardwalk Empire, I think Shay, uh, is it Shay Wiggum, yeah, Shay Wiggum and Glenn Fleshler, uh, basically just reprised their roles from Boardwalk Empire with with different costumes. I think um, they they don't stray far from what we've seen them do before, but um, but the other guys are very surprising. So I like the acting. I don't know how tightly. It's written. It's clearly from the perspective of Michael Shanahan's character and from David Thibodeau's book. Um, And so those characters are portrayed very sympathetically in a world where there's not much else. There's there's not many other people who are portrayed sympathetically unless they're 100% victims or just sort of uh, useful character adjuvants. Yeah, so I I will probably weigh in as somebody who um, followed the the Waco story pretty carefully, uh, and uh, and who has made a point of reading stuff about it since that time. Um, and so for me, I don't know. First of all, but just back to Michael Shannon for a second. I I, I want to sort of do an early endorsement. Uh, and Jim, uh, you in particular have to watch this. Uh, if you can Google or just go on YouTube and look up Michael Shannon. And adorable things. Um, it's it's just it's just him <laughs> I, getting. I it's this very cute uh, uh, puppy dog worshiping version of Michael Shannon. It's very funny. But and with uh, that, I'll say goodbye for yeah, the afternoon. That's right. No, you, you have to stay the, stay the bitter end here. So I, what, I guess what I was looking for, and is I think similar to what someone thing that Tanisha said too, is like give me. A, like a, a take on this and 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 to Jim's point yes it is written very much from the point of view of the negotiator played by Michael Shannon so just to emphasize Michael Shannon plays the most reasonable person uh, on certainly on the police side of this story uh, and so it's written from his point of view and then the point of view of one of the survivors uh, a guy named Thibodeau uh, who is played by a Culkin um, 
Rory Culkin, I'm going to say. Yep. <laughs> yes. See, yes. Tanisha, I don't feel like I should be required to be able to know which Culkin I'm looking at. I know. I <laughs> should be required to know which Culkin, yeah. for sure. <laughs> I rely on you for things like that. So, um, sure. and, and so, yeah, I, I think there are two perspectives that, that it's kind of juggling back and forth, but both of them are the perspective of a pretty legitimate argument, argument, which was this was a bunch of people who were mainly practicing their religion. Uh, this particular standoff never needed to happen. David Koresh would go jogging around Waco all the time. They could have picked him up if that's who they wanted. They could have picked him up off the street on any given day when he was out, you know, running around. Uh, so there was like there was no reason for there to be a 51 stand day standoff. This is a yeah. huge law enforcement error, you know. And and then you know there's this argument that Malcolm Gladwell has made, which is that if you didn't understand them as a legitimate religion, as people who were really were spending six to 12 hours at times in focused, concentrated Bible study, if you just saw this as some kind of weird sex and gun cult, that you missed the point of them and you didn't understand how to work with them and how to resolve this problem. And I guess I would say that case is made pretty well, but maybe... Tanisha, just not excitingly enough or something, or it wasn't, I don't know, I didn't find myself gripped by that realization. Well, I think you distilled for me exactly the version of Waco I would have liked to see. And I think if I had toggled between Rory, uh, Rory Culkin. Culkin. <laughs> You're really um, slipping on the Culkin front here. I am, because he's not my favorite. I and mean, let's be honest, Home Alone is like, you know, the only... Culkin out there. Um, but I think if I had seen Michael Shannon's character and I had seen Rory Culkin's character and we had toggled between those two stories and and David Koresh became secondary to this, I might actually have gotten into it. Because I feel like, again, my very smoky, hazy remembrance of it was a lot of David Koresh, right? Like, I don't care that he's been bleeding for a million days and he's still recording and this is his family. I don't care that, you know, his number two is now stepping in to do negotiating. But what I do care about is that that boy went outside because he's, he's fallen in love with somebody in the compound and, and is going to bury her father, right? Like that kind of like character study and story that I'm interested in seeing. And I I'm and I like Michael Shannon, so I want to follow him because I like him as an actor. But I got probably could have done without, you know, as you said, the hero version of this of this FBI agent, this very sympathetic version of this FBI agent. Um I I I think I wanted the story of the people on the compound. Who was the black guy? How did he end up there? He was a, I, I believe in real life in real life he's based on a Harvard educated lawyer. A lot of the people in the compound, I mean the the character played by uh, the Mickey Doyle character from from Boardwalk Empire was a <laughs> theology professor from Hawaii. Uh, there was a Harvard educated lawyer. I think it's that that character there in, in the compound. These weren't I, I don't know, these weren't like recruited from biker gangs or anything. <laughs> These were like people who were really smart, interesting people who just happened to fall under the spell of this guy. But maybe to your point, uh, Tanisha, and let's get Jim to react to this too. If it's going to be about the incredible spell cast by David Kor Kor Koresh, 
I don't know. I, as much as I like Taylor Kitsch, and I do love Taylor Kitsch, and I loved him as Tim Riggins, I thought he was a Christ figure in that series. There, there's a sort of Raphael's Christ quality to his hangdog look as Tim Riggins in Friday Night Lights. There was a way in which he, I, I just, I had Jim a hard time believing that 150 people were willing to commit their lives mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. particular guy. Yeah, I, I, I did too. I mean, uh, and I, I don't, I, again, it's not, it wasn't the acting, it was the writing and the way it was edited together that it, it, he was, he was kind of straddling everything and not committed to anything. Uh, until the very end, I think, where you see like, okay, he's off the rails. He, they've pushed him so far that we're off the rails now. Um, but up to that point, it seemed like, oh, it's completely, I guess it's cool to have 12-year-old wives or 14-year-old wives. And I, <laughs> well, if one of them is Julia Garner, come on now. <laughs> but, but they didn't really, you know, they, they didn't drill into his peculiarities enough to, to mm-hmm. like what made him become that guy was it was he rejected as a child what was his childhood like and it turns out that the branch davidians had been there you, you you know this for a long time and that he sort of inherited it and then had to take it back in an armed takeover prior to this so there is a history of him and guns that that i think he was portrayed almost sort of a vi- as a victim and this was a more botched tragedy than than we had seen from police in prior standoff things before there's also a, a weird little easter egg at the at the very end there's a courtroom scene uh where both real life Thibodeau and real life negotiator gary play uh characters in it i don't know if you guys noticed that did not um, yeah <laughs> Does anybody, Tanisha, I'll start with you. This may be unfair to put you on the spot this way, but I'm wondering if anybody has a theory about why this is resonating. You know, is it just that there's whole generations of people who just don't know this story? Uh, Or is there some chord that is being struck in this thing that, I mean, really, the reason that we're doing it is because we were having a staff meeting and uh, or show, show staff meeting and people started talking about the fact that a lot of people are watching this thing. Any thoughts about why that might be? I, I mean, I think it plucks at a lot of things that are, I mean, to me, and it's prob- probably why I had a hard time connecting. It makes me think of these men standing on state capitals with uh, AK-47s, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's something about this uh, relationship between personal and state um, that I think is ringing bells. I think there's something about, you know, being on a compound um, and sort of taking care of yourself with within a group of people um, that I think also is ringing um, true for people. You know, like if you already lived on a compound with 14 people and and could get what you needed uh, through them, you may be able to ride the quarantine without so much loneliness. Um, I think there's. I, to me, I think there's a lot of threads of existential crisis. Right, possible. That's a, that's a great I just point. Don't know if it's really, I don't know if it actually delivers, right? But I think it at least pokes those synapses in your brain. Sorry. Right. Colin. No, that I think that's. I hadn't really made that connection 
but it really is about 150 or so people quarantining together. Exactly. Plus, like, you know, 75 members of law enforcement quarantining together. And in neither case are people getting along all that well. Jim, did you want to add your interpretation? Well, you know, I, I, I love what Tanisha is saying. It does sort of harken to the early days of this, of what maybe culminates in the Tea Party. And I don't know, this sort of, and you can, and the way it's portrayed is you can understand why people hate the government uh, in this. But it does sort of, those were the origin. Ruby Ridge is yep. often cited. You know, my wife's birthday is April 19th. And every April 19th, there would be something like this happening because mostly people use this as an echo to justify uh, Oklahoma. The, uh, Timothy McVeigh, I believe, was on April 19th. The two-year anniversary. Uh, the, the, yeah. I, I might be wrong. But right. uh, Boston Marathon bombing was maybe April 19th. At any rate, she's afraid of her birthday now. So so I don't, I don't even know that we celebrate it. But, but it, it's become... Um, symbolic for for uh both waco ruby ridge and those might be the roots of this anti-government sort of white guys with guns quarantining and holding up somewhere and and uh thinking that they're in the the revolution again Right. I, when, you know, first of all, I, I agree with what both of you have said about this. You know, this is very much about the origins of that kind of feeling of the, about the deep state. Right. And so, yeah, in quick sequence in the 90s, you have Ruby Ridge, then you have Waco, then you have the Oklahoma City bombing. There's a lot of other stuff going on. And the 90s are just like when you look back at them, they're just like the most horrible decade in so many different ways. Uh, OJ trial, Rodney Until King. Until now. <laughs> uh, I know. I know. But I think this I think this. This is the we're living in the field that was seeded in the 90s and is now being mm. harvested. Uh, I, I really feel that. But this is sort of an yeah, interesting portrait right. of the deep state, too, because, you know, it, it, like in the paranoid uh, version of the deep state, uh, they're all unified and they're all out to impose their will on us. It turns out that the BATF hates the FBI and within the FBI, the host hostage rescue team, the HTR, hates the negotiators. It's more like Seinfeld. Everybody's like mad at everybody else all the time. <laughs> time uh so uh it's sort of both interpretations of the deep state are, are present here we should probably wrap you know, this up so you, yeah go ahead one before last you thought, do yeah. wrap i, I yeah. just want to point out one thing present company excluded um currently when we think of sort of am talk show hosts we we think mostly that these are people who are conspiracy driven uh, uh super conservative uh, the loudest voices ironically the most sane voice in this was that unnamed DJ who sort of provides <laughs> provides like a Greek chorus for this whole thing, um, who's the voice of reason, and he's willing to listen to both sides. Right. I just right. found that sort of weird that that role has morphed. Right. out of control too. that was that was actually ray dunaway i think he probably was working in dallas I know. No, no it's not that's not with a beer right. yeah well, we'll take a little break right now i want to give uh, our panelists some time to make some recommendations to you i read it to you from where i've been hauled up in this bucolic agrarian compound one step ahead Show that I could visit you, my sweet betrothed, and a couple of days will all be free.
All right, we're back. I have to say a quick thank you, a couple of quick thank yous. One of them is to Kat Pastor, who keeps things uh, humming. Uh, she's in the studio, which means we can work remotely. Uh, so our gratitude to her. And, of course, everything just sounds great uh, when Kat's running the board. Uh, so she's our technical producer. The uh, episode producer is uh, Jonathan McPants, who's slacking at me right now. And that's why I was hesitating. Also, Gene Amatruda is one of the technical wizards behind the scenes. Uh, Gene actually had to deliver equipment to my house today, so I'm very very grateful for that. Hey, on Monday, one of the things that has been spell, just cast a spell on me is this a podcast called Don't Laugh, This Week in Virology. Well, I love this podcast. And one of the hosts of it, uh, Vincent, R- R- Vincent Racaniello, I think I'm saying his name right. Uh, I certainly will be saying his name right by Monday. He's going to be on. I'm very excited about that. All right. Time to make some recommendations. Uh, Tanisha Dugan, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, So I'm a Pisces, which means that I'm kind of, I have a very mystical side of me, which people probably don't know (laughs) when they meet me, probably disconnected in some ways. So the two uh, endorsements I'm making today are of a mystical sense. Um, First um, is Age into Beauty, which is um, a a spiritual healing, um, oils and... um, candles, um, wonderful magic that has been really um, grounding for me in this time. Um, So Agent of Beauty, you can find uh, them on uh, Instagram, Um, amazing products. Um, And then Able Ground, which is uh, a website that I get crystals from, um, that has also been really great for me in this time. So if that kind of thing, you know, keeps you sane and grounded and connected to yourself and your family and your life. Those are two um, women-run organizations that I love, Age Into Beauty and Able Ground. You know, I'm not sure I ever fully grasped this particular side of you, but Tanisha, (laughs) you are full of surprises. Uh, All right, uh, Jim Chapdelaine, how about you? I'm, I'm Tanisha just blew my mind. First of all, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's my whole life since I was like, I mean, since I was a teenager, I started collecting crystals and like mystical magic kind of things. I would, I mean, we can get into it, but I dabbled in Wiccan rays, which terrified my mother. But anyway, Yeah, Jim, it's time to, for you to uh, reveal your obsession with box lacrosse or something. I'm not, <laughs> no, to... no, I'm uh, dabbing patchouli behind both ears right now. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm wearing a blousy shirt in honor of Tanisha and Seinfeld. My birth. Uh, sort of a, a, a pirate blouse. Puffy shirt, yeah. Um, I, I'm going to go with a Netflix sort of theme, and um, I'm going to reiterate my affection for a show called Afterlife with Ricky Gervais. Um, and we're speaking of nimble comedians, and he can be really sort of one of the most offensive people, but he he's lost his wife in this, and, and it's really his only reason for living is that he's just genuinely uh, in love with this woman, and she dies of cancer, and his life has to go on, and, um, and he lives in a little English village and works at a crappy little newspaper, um, and it, it's sort of about his redemption, but he always cries, and the idea that Ricky Gervais is legitimately crying is a revelation to me. Um, so it's a, it's a it's sort of a tender little show that's goofy and stuff. I like that. Um, 
The other show I, I mentioned earlier is Mark Marin's uh, End Times Fun, which I, I really liked because he recorded it last November and somehow he predicted everything that's happening. And he is a stage prowler, but not an aggressive prowler. Uh, he's a very inward-looking comedian, and um, and he knows how to tell a long story. Uh, and lastly, I do this one with great risk because it's about improv comedy, which you know should strike a, a chord of fear with everybody. Um, but there's a show called Middle Ditch and Schwartz. I can't even say Schwartz, and um, and we watched it as a family here, and it can get a little uncomfortable, but. It was really funny, and it's it's not often that improv comedy is consistently like funny right through. Maybe they edit it, I don't know, but at, at least watch the first episode. You can decide for yourself because I thought it was funny. Thomas uh, Middleditch is from uh, Silicon Valley, and uh, he he shows a whole different side of himself. All right, so watch it with all twelve of your wives. Uh, or however many you have there in the compound. Uh, all right, so uh, you can rewatch Friday Night Lights or watch it if you've never watched it. Do not be put off by the fact that it's about football. It's not really about football, but that's where T Taylor Kitsch and Tim Briggins come from. That's what we've been talking about the entire time. Uh, I'll recommend two Twitter accounts. I don't have time to describe them. Just look at them. One's called Room Raider, and the other one's called Bookcase Credibility. Uh, either, both of them will make you laugh. And in honor of Tanisha, uh, I will. I wasn't going to mention it, but I will now say the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, which is like this eight-hour documentary uh, about uh, Gary and his spirituality. And I don't think there are any crystals, but you bring your own. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back on Monday. Avon, yeah, 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 yeah.